But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. Hi, Callie. Hey, Michelle. Did you enjoy the veggie tray we had today? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Never eaten a vegetable before. Yeah, before today. It's my first time. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah, Thank you crunchy. for introducing me to that. You're welcome. Are you ready for our second installment of Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh by Dr. Wendy S. Painting. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm excited. Let's do this. Yeah. So I wanted to open up today's episode with, you're going to love this. This is from, this is one of the chapter headers that, one of the quotes that opens one of the sections of the book that Painting put in here. And it is from a book titled whispers the voices of paranoia no i know right um but this is really interesting so here's the quote and then wait until you hear the authors okay oh god so most people actually use the word paranoid to denote an overly suspicious person but the suspicious thinking of a paranoid is more than the normal mistrust and doubt implied by the word it is suspicion in the literal meaning to look below the surface for details, but sometimes the imaginary enemies turned out to be real. It was written by Ronald K. Siegel, a pharmacologist and a professor at UCLA Berkeley, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science, a colleague and co-author with Dr. John. Oh West. no, I knew it! <laughs> knew i don't I, I just sensed that dr jolly was in the room with us right now <laughs> know, he's right? fucking everywhere i want to photoshop him into that picture at the end of the shining when they zoom out because oh, he's yeah. got to be there he's probably fucking there he's everywhere he yeah you're right he's everywhere i wanted to say too last week we talked about we didn't talk i mean like i've said before if you want to hear more about the turner diaries we did talk about them extensively a couple years ago was actually. that on the waco episode it was on we did two okc bombing yeah. episodes a couple yeah. of years okay ago. so it was like the second okc episode probably i think so and we did talk about it a lot but for folks who don't know it's not they're not diaries it's a fictionalized um di it's a fictionalized diary mm -hmm. and it was actually written by uh, some physicists like it has a really weird story to it but anyway the turner diaries are actually because we were talking about that blueprint the mm -hmm. last in the last episode. So the Turner Diaries are actually what is considered the blueprint for like what right wing. It's always so hard to say right wing extremism. Uh, and it was the order was the club, the racist club that made a praxis out of it. So when PatCon was getting established, what we talked about, you mm -hmm. know, in that episode, when PatCon was getting established, they were like, oh, this is great. We've got the order figured out how to turn the Turner Diaries into an actual like practice for organizing racist, white supremacist extremism. So I wanted to make that clear before we went on our 
our journey today. I wish anarchists could do that. But we yeah. are very suppressed, so I wouldn't say it's 100% our fault. I mean, I think that that's so true all around. Anytime we talk about organizing, whether it's anarchist organizing, communist organizing, any kind of organizing that's outside of what we're already doing, one of the main problems is you have these structures who have a monopoly on both violence and intelligence, like intelligence information right like surveillance all of that yeah it's like fucking kyle rittenhouse gets to be a little free boy taking pictures with donald trump meanwhile mm-hmm. like activists in ferguson are like murdered in their car yeah yeah and so the people who really have all these powers to organize this is what it's it's coming it's coming straight out of the fbi and they're never and like or the cia right i mean it's coming straight out of these places that have these that have these monopolies on things we literally can't touch. It's illegal for us to do violence. It's not illegal for them. It's yeah, illegal it's for encouraged. us to spy. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. yeah, the, that Kyle Rittenhouse shit like really fucking yeah. blew my mind. I mean, it was like, oh, yeah, of course he's free. But it was still so, so, so shocking. And yeah, yeah it's exactly what you're talking about. Like, yeah. oh, no, you can do this because you yeah. killed the dissidents of white supremacy so you're actually a patriot and we love you and you can Mm -hmm. come golfing with us (laughs) yeah take a picture with your favorite guy with your superhero yeah uh so this week we want to get into we touched on i only read the list last week of what the five types of stories that were told uh, uh, that Timothy McVeigh himself would always start, right? But there were five different types of stories and she gives them names of the, t- of the type of narrative that it is about the bombing. And I think these types are really important because it's not just, it's not just about Oklahoma City. These is about stories and about the stories that are told about people who do these atrocities. These are the, this is kind of the foundation of how we tell these paranoid quote unquote stories about yeah about these mass shootings all of uh mass shootings these big bombings terrorism in general kind of all of our archetypal characters in this way so we're going to go over those five types because i think like i said it's not just about timothy mcveigh this is a really this is a really strong theoretical foundation for how we tell these narratives across the board so the first type i'll read you the five types and then we'll go into each one i love i feel too like just knowing that wendy is like into tarot i'm like oh the archetypes and tarot like it just it's all kind of the same because tarot is so archetypal as well right oh yeah it's true and like and timothy mcveigh be himself becomes an archetype which we'll get into a little bit here today also Um, But the five types are the lone wolf and then two and three kind of go together. So it's the pack of wolves and those closely watched. They go together as one, but they're, they deserve to have to be seen also as separate. Four is the guilty agent and five is the experimental wolf. So we'll get into what all of those mean. I know I'm just thinking, and you, you could take this, this out. But if there was like an oracle deck of like all these different archetypes. Oh <laughs> Actually. Terrorist it, oracle deck. Okay, that's problematic. 
Maybe. Delete this. <laughs> now that now that you're saying it though, like it could I mean, I read a lot of tarot cards for people. It could be really good for like bad relationships where I'm like, oh gotta bust out the terrorist. Yeah, gotta bust oh out God. the terrorist tag. <laughs> Somebody's gonna cancel me. <laughs> Whatever. I don't fucking care. <laughs> um so you have the lone wolf is the first one, which this is the most widely known story. And it's also the story endorsed by the US government, which says that this was motivated by an anger for the government after Waco, mm. which of course, Timothy says, but we already know that. Whatever we say here, he said it first. Yeah. So, and then this story, of the lone wolf it's interesting because we already know that he didn't act alone i mean that's even proven that's not paranoid people other people went to prison for helping him right yeah so right so but he says in this story the idea is that he acted totally alone and all terry nichols did was help gather components for and help them assemble the bomb. But this one's great. But Terry Nichols did this under duress because he feared that Timothy McVeigh would hurt him and his family. With what? He's he doesn't have a bomb. You're he, building him you're the fucking the bomb, bro. Bomb. <laughs> right? Jesus Christ! It really. I hadn't actually come across that part before, where Ter Terry Nichols was under duress. I hadn't actually seen that anywhere before, and I was like, "Wait, what?" Okay, sidebar. I don't even know if I told you this yet, but my friend knows Terry Nichols' cousin. What? And Terry Nichols' cousin is like, I have the tea. So we need to try to get uh, that person oh, on here. Okay. With Ooh. my friend, maybe, because my friend's cool, too, and is also reading this book. Oh, my hey, goodness. Hey, Andy. Hi. He's going to buy the Hoodat mug. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I digress. Yeah. We have a real-life connection to this now, though. I mean, yeah, we do. through six degrees of separation style. Wait, see. Yeah, it's like three degrees, I think. Terry to cousin, cousin to Andy, Andy to us, three or four. So the lone wolf story is the story told in Timothy McVeigh's authorized biography, which is titled uh, American Terrorist Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City Bombing, which summarizes and advances the FBI's conclusion. So the author of that book has just set out to do nothing besides give us the FBI's story. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. FBI. Thank you. Thank you, author. What a journalist. What a journalist. You know, I I, heard, I saw something the other day about how um, the New York Times is like letting Israeli uh, government like read all their articles before they publish them now. Oh, my. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just every day. That's not how you do journalism. Not the last time I heard about like, it. Like my journalist friend shared it and was like. The way that you do this is like you can give people like a heads up and like some like overarching ideas of like what you're going to publish, but you would never give anybody like the full article. But that's that's just what's happening now. I don't know. Yeah. They are disseminating what they want. Propaganda. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Um, like this book about yeah. Timothy McVeigh, yeah. this uh, American terrorist book. So it constantly reasserts that in this book, in the the one that summarizes the FBI's conclusion, one of the main things that book wants to get across over and over again is that every lead was followed. There was no stone unturned, mm. right? It's so interesting that you say that. 
because <laughs> it's a lie. <laughs> it's a total lie, yeah. right? I love that um, lie you told. I know, That's so cool right? of you. <laughs> Again, though. That's what he said. I mean, that's oh. what Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> they got McVeigh. <laughs> they got McVeigh. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, who knows how much you're like offered to like write these books. And we saw the Bush family would like hand out like, here, write a book about my great grandfather instead of me and the truth. Right. Right. It would be like, hey, I got a better idea. Yeah. We're right. going to give you a ton of money to do something different. Yeah. Some, right. <laughs> so, uh, but that's the lone wolf story. And in this one, Terry Nichols was under duress. I just, I don't know. That's just, I don't believe that. In lone wolf stories, all details of the plot and the identities Motives, movements, and actions of perpetrators are known. Additional unapprehended accomplices and co-conspirators do not exist. And no stone has been left unturned. Mm -hmm. No mystery remains. And narrative closure is achieved. As with all other narrative types, the lone wolf story originated with multiple individuals and institutions and appeared prior to McVeigh. McVeigh's and Nichols' trials or convictions within news reports, biographical works, and in McVeigh's own letters and conversations with his defense team and reporters, right? Because that's what he said. Today, the lone wolf story is not only inscribed upon geographical locations, memorials, but also permanently embedded in consciousness and the collective national memory. I think, and it's important those, those, all the closure, everything being tied up, that's really like when we talk about trauma, PTSD, any type of trauma, the reason that it lives in our psychology forever is we can't resolve it. That's that's really why people ha have trauma. That's really what it's about. It's a story that can't be resolved. Your brain can't find a way to, to make close it make it. sense. Yes. Bro. Right? That's sad. I, it's, I get that as yeah. a trombed person. Yeah, me too. I mean, I remind myself of that when I start, you know, I have PTSD spirals. I'm like, oh, yeah, because this is, this is the story. The spiral is the story. Like, there isn't a resolve on it. It's helpful. That's not an unhelpful way to understand my own psychology. But to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, I can't end this story. And human beings are storytellers like we're narrative animals that's yeah, really like just asking like why did this happen mm -hmm. and then like not being able to find an answer that yeah. that works that works the truth is like too fucked up yeah and even the truth doesn't doesn't give you the reason mm -mm. you know when it's something mm -hmm. like why why when did people you are doing stuff that's just like against human nature like how do you make sense how, of that right how do you make sense of it and you just you don't and two we like stories to not only close but to move on to the next chapter with something worthwhile from the former chapter and again something you don't do you can't really do with trauma which is also why for people who are traumatized by certain events getting into activism to stop that you know whether you're doing anti-rape act activism anti-war if you get into activism against the thing that happened to you, it can help you give that new start in the next chapter. So that gives you some kind of 
hold on a reason anyway that's nice yeah it makes me feel good yeah i mean that's from trauma and recovery that's judith herman kind of the bible on the trauma stuff so that's yeah then that still seems to kind of be the way uh, the way forward for things like that. But that's the idea is that you have a new chapter that has some kind of purpose to it from the last chapter, even if you can't close that chapter. Mm -hmm. So all of that having been said for the point of like making a story where this thing that traumatized uh, so many people mm -hmm. has this narrative to it where you're like, okay, well now I understand. Mm-hmm. which is also just kind of a little bit of magical thinking in a way too. It's like you do. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you understand? This guy who like, what do you understand? Like, even for me, I'm like, still don't know that that ties it up for me. No, but, and it's like really patronizing. Agreed. It's really like placating. Like what's the, the Soma from Brave New World or whatever is like mm-hmm. the drug that they give people to it's just that yeah you're right relaxation drug we've got this under control yeah no you're fine it was just him yeah yeah it was just this crazy guy (laughs) i love the trauma asmr (laughs) yeah so that's the lone wolf story (laughs) stupid And that's supposed to make us feel better. So, all right. I mean, wow. Do I ever see people holding on to the propaganda, though? Because it does make them feel better in here. And just, yeah. I mean, so everybody, like, so many people love propaganda. It's so much easier Mm. to just be like, yes, that is what happened because it made me feel better. Even if it's, like, not what's happening at all. I mean, I don't want to, like, fucking bring up Gaza again. It's just what's happening. But it's like... You know, I have like a friend from high school who's unfortunately a Zionist. It sucks. But I also like see how she's comforted by the narrative that Israel's presenting. Like that narrative actually is comforting to people because it's a lot harder for people to have to be like, oh, shit, this government that like my grandparents were quote-unquote saved by after the fucking holocaust they lived through actually sucks and is doing the same thing to other people it's so much harder Mm. to accept that like it's Mm. way easier to just go along with the propaganda rather than like recognize that like you are complicit in something really horrible yeah yeah right okay yeah i can see that yeah propaganda is easy yeah right and you have a lot you have a lot of friends on oh, the yeah. boat with you yeah. instead of being an outlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of being like the crazy person on the hill. Like, I'm telling you. Right. I mean, I know you were protesting and stuff for the Iraq war and shit. And mm-hmm. like everybody who was against the Iraq war was also a terrorist, you know, mm-hmm. or like hates America. And it's just like, yeah, fucking so what? Of course, <laughs> I, of course I hate America. Like. I mean, you can I, yeah that always was such a funny like kind of story too because it's like well i mean yes but no you shouldn't take that personally right you know <laughs> uh, well the next narrative type that we have is the pack of wolves and those closely watched, which is two and three. You'll see why they go together, but also kind of need their separate designation a little bit. So I'm just gonna read from Painting's book. 
In cases of high-profile American assassinations where one lone gunman appears, alternate accounts inevitably emerge, asserting that the involvement of multiple shooters and competing claims about their identities. Multiple gunmen rumored to have been involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy include, but are not limited to, the CIA, KGB, Secret Service, Mossad, Mafia, anti-Castro Cubans, a plethora, a plethora of intelligence operatives, including Howard Hunt, David Ferry, and the Three Tramps, Man with the Umbrella, Black Dog Man, and Lee Harvey Oswald. I love it when she does lists in this. They're so funny. <laughs> Likewise, in some stories about the Oklahoma City bombing, where Lone Wolf Bomber McVeigh appears, others follow closely behind who populate a second, more thematically complex genre of narratives collectively referred to as the Pack of Wolves. Unlike the uniformity of lone wolf narratives, pack stories have distinct variations. The pack and the pack closely watched. So I'm going to go, I'm going to drop down a little bit and read more from it. While the identities and roles of the others remain the subject of inquiry and speculation, their involvement and sometimes even their existence are officially denied. Unlike the lone wolf template, the basis its claims to truth on unlike the lone wolf template that bases its claims to truth on known information and achieves total narrative closure, the defining quality of pack stories and all other variants is the unknown and thus an inability to achieve resolution. Mm -hmm. So only the lone wolf narrative can give us this resolution that we've just established the human mind desires, if not requires. Mm -hmm. And also bureaucracy requires that like you gotta close that case that's true why would you keep a case open when you actually need it to be closed for your numbers right yeah that's right and i'm very x-files minded right now (laughs) i love that it's perfect i know i think we're both scully (laughs) oh yeah that's right i mean that honestly that show would have been better with two scullies yes i know (laughs) <laughs> now my mind is racing. <laughs> <laughs> the Scully on Scully X-Files. Double Scully and also they're gay <laughs> with each other. <laughs> this is another fan fiction we can write. Okay, I can't get too disturbed by <laughs> back, back to McVeigh. Back to McVeigh. Um, so, but in these stories with the... <laughs> With the pack of wolves and those closely watched is that McVeigh is no longer the mastermind. So, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is like in, the, in that loan. He's just like the patsy. Yeah, pretty much. He loses this control over his, his destiny, over his soul, right? So, and he doesn't like that very much. So the lone wolf story, but like, of course, he tells all the stories, but the lone wolf story, I think, winds up being his favorite also. Not that I think in the end that he could get out of the lone wolf story, just to say. But I also think he preferred it on a certain level. Because, like, if he's not... Because even in the lone wolf story, like, look at what he's supposedly doing to Terry Nichols. He's, like, threatening him and his family and stuff. Like, he's a very powerful man in that story. I mean, I think, like, from what we were talking about last time, 
the idea that he just like wants to be a special boy. Yeah. And like I mean that and like special boy is like the easy way to say it, but like the slightly longer way is like this is somebody who had like gen generally been failing at everything he'd mm-hmm. been trying or just not being good enough mm-hmm. and just seeking out like what is the thing that I'm gonna be good at? Like that's that's the issue. Yeah. Um and like yeah, I could see it being like, oh, well, I was the best at the terrorism, so mm-hmm. I am special now. I mm-hmm. succeeded. Yeah. Or behind the scenes, I succeeded at being the best patsy for this project. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. And maybe that's why he got to kind of get some of his wishes in the end, too. So we'll get to that. And oh, I'm yeah, gonna... I'm like, ooh, there's <laughs> wishes. Yeah, those wishes. That's not going to be today's episode. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he's, he, you know, the power goes to these others unknown. And so it, to take a, it's, these others unknown then take this larger role in the event. And over time, these others, and this is from Wendy Painting, these others become kind of a single character. It's what we know as like John Doe too, like all of the others unknown kind of coalesce into this one, this one character that is unknown, which Mm -hmm. is John Doe too, but he's probably many characters. Ooh. Right. Well, that gave me like a, I know (laughs) like a chill. It's not even Halloween anymore, but like, Ooh, (laughs) well, and he, you know, and you know, it's interesting too, in Oliver Stone's version of JFK, which had such a big, I mean, I'm always surprised that there's still people out there that believe the lone gunman story, but about Kennedy, right? Um, I'm like, wait, what? You do? Like, I'm always shocked by that, but it seems to have really kind of even made people a comeback. People really into it, I don't Yeah, think. probably not, but it, I probably not. I think you're probably right. And then I even sometimes think that people who are like, they don't technically believe it, but they are also like, but who cares? Like, that's the story. Like, you right. just like, you don't stand around here and concern yourself with the Kennedy assassination. You just take the story and you move on with your life. So in the in Oliver Stone's film, mm-hmm. one of the, I mean, I'm not a huge, I'm not a fan of Oliver Stone. And like, that film was very fun to watch, but it also infuriated me because he collapsed so many characters into like one characters who were really seriously involved probably characters that were fbi connected cia connected right he's collapsing them into he collapsed them into one character and so it it just is something that it came to my mind reading this of being like oh yeah everybody does collapse all these other characters really do collapse into john doe too even in a case like jfk when we know who the players were and we have Oliver Stone making this big blockbuster film of the times where he's like, yeah, but not in my movie, my movie, who's going to my movie that's going to have a big effect on how people see this case. I'm not going to have those. They're going to become others unknown. So while all lone wolf accounts have remained uniform and consistent after McVeigh's execution, pack stories have become increasingly complex due in part to the continuing emergence of case-related information resulted from ongoing formal and informal investigative, legal, and academic efforts. That's fascinating also because Timothy McVeigh is supposedly dead, 
Mm-hmm. And this story, these John Doe's, this others unknown, continue to proliferate within with with more and more stories about them, even though they're unknown. And even though he was a total lone wolf and nobody else was involved. Right. Oh, except Terry Nichols, who he's threatening. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So the other story, number four, is guilty agent. So this is a witting un- undercover a- operative. So this is somebody who's like, yes, I'm signing up to go undercover into your thing, right? Because you, you can have operatives out there who don't actually recognize what they're doing. They're not necessarily witting operatives. But you, in Guilty Agent, you have, he's a witting operative. And he, so he's in, agreeing to be involved in a sting operation that went wrong, thus necessitating a cover-up. Right, which is where, you know, sometimes he says, well, only the windows were supposed to be blown out or maybe somebody switched the truck or he says it was supposed to go off in the middle of the night. Like these are things that he has said. So this would make him the guilty agent that's requiring a cover up. So because he, you wouldn't be able to say if, if he is an agent who was supposed to just make sure the windows got blown out or it was supposed to go off at three o'clock in the morning, there would have to be a cover up maybe involving him becoming the lone wolf mm-hmm. because what's going to happen is the FBI going to step in and say, we blew up our own building. Right. Right. Okay. And the fifth and final narrative that we have is the experimental wolf, which is... Of course, my favorite. I'm sorry. That one. You're doing great. Thanks. I just remember I used to do this performance where I talked about a wolf all the time. And depending on where I was, people would be like, how do you say it? How do you say it? Because of my southern accent. (laughs) And I'm like, how do you say it? Like, wolf. Like you have a dick in your mouth? Wolf. Wolf. Ah! Like you have a dick in your mouth? (laughs) That's so funny. Say it how you want to say it. Everybody knows what you're fucking Everybody talking about. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, finally, experimental wolf narratives break with many previous understandings of the bombing story and the life of Timothy McVeigh and often disrupt linearity and agency normally ascribed to him. In them, McVeigh, the ultimate conspiracy theorist, is rendered the victim of a conspiracy, a dupe, a guilty agent lacking real agency, a traumatized automaton suffering from agency panic, the sense of being shaped or controlled by powerful external forces, and sometimes Generation X's own Manchurian candidate. Within many of these theories, either during or after his time in the army, McVeigh was a test subject for classified experimental or refined procedures until after his arrest. McVeigh is thus depicted as a human guinea pig who, unbeknownst even to himself, depending on the version articulated, is influenced, tracked, or controlled by a number of mysterious technologies, drugs, and methods manipulated by mad scientists operating out of black-budgeted staging grounds in a number of geographical locations. Reoccurring themes and elements may include high-level, officially sanctioned architects of death, brainwashed automatons, and from time to time, UFOs. Ooh! Right? 
According to painting, uh, immediately after McVeigh's arrest, reports went out saying uh, the black helicopter crowd, in quotes, I'm putting that in quotes because I have something interesting to say about that here in a second, uh, which would be the conspiracy crowd, the oh, black helicopter crowd, right? Because black helicopters aren't real. What? I know, right? So the black helicopter crowd, quote unquote, were suggesting it was mind control. Like immediately after his arrest, they started making propaganda about people who would question the the official narrative. There wasn't even an official narrative yet. So you've got these you've got these players in society who just like know it's time to get out just on top of it out there. You know what to do, man. Go out there and make people get ahead ask, of this. Yeah, people who ask questions must be crazy. Get on it, you know. So. <laughs> Um, and that many variations of the experimental stories appeared online and even in book link works prior to McVeigh's execution. Um, oh, and she mentions in this book too one of my favorite uh, playwrights, Tracy Letts. And he wrote a play called Bug, which was also a movie with Ashley Judd. What? In it. This is, I don't know anything about this. It came out in 2006. It's kind of, it's kind of an older movie or 2007, maybe something like that. But it's, it's a, actually a really, I really enjoyed the movie. And Ashley Judd is so amazing in it. And, and I like Tracy Lutz a lot. But in Bug, it's, he believes he has a uh, implant in his tooth. And he convinces, he meets this woman and just kind of convinces her to go crazy with him, basically. Cool. Yeah. I mean, fun. it's, I mean, parts of it, there's, there's one really hard scene where he pulls out his own tooth and like, Ooh. yeah, I had to watch it with like my hand. I mean, I've seen the movie a few times, but I always have to put my hand up. Yeah, that sounds gross. Doing that part. But it is really good. And so like, it's really good, but it does go in line because at the end of the film, of course, like he's not bug. They're on meth or whatever, right? They're doing drugs and like lost it. And she's like, she's lost a son, I think, which is the whole thing. Like she's ready to just kind of take a journey with anybody who's going anywhere, mm -hmm. right? Because she's in so much pain. And so that winds up kind of being the, the end narrative is you have this one schizophrenic man who who and then this woman in pain and that's where they got all wrapped up in mm -hmm. this right so even that movie in and of itself is another kind of hit against the culture mm -hmm. of like somebody's listening to you and watching you it's just it's such a funny thing now when you know everything's listening to you like they just you have straight to up know well, they tell you. I mean, when you get the apps on your phone, it's like, we're going to give yeah. you a colonoscopy. Is that okay? And you're like, well, yeah. Yeah. And like, okay, so the other day when we were talking about Canva, mm -hmm. now I have Canva ads on my phone. I didn't type it right. into my phone. You know? Right. All I was doing was talking about it in the same room that my cell phone was in. Yep. So we know that people are listening to us, but we still have this way of acting like we don't. There's still so many people who or act it's like, like it's... It's like desensitized almost. Desensitized, yeah. I think that's like... I mean, they say that about putting cameras on people in general. Like after yeah. a while, you know you're being filmed, but you just... It doesn't really have any repercussions. You know, you're not watching it. You're not... Nobody's talking to you about it. Like, you just are like, oh, well, I'm going to go on with my life. And then, 
you know. I know. I know for a fact nobody can tell me otherwise that my phone sends me telepathic messages. I believe. Nobody can tell me otherwise. I totally believe And in a hundred years, when mm-hmm. they prove that this has been happening, mm-hmm. my dead body mm-hmm. will reanimate yes, and go, I fucking told you they were doing this. Yes, it will. Yeah, I'm coming yeah. back, baby. Oh, yeah. I'll be underwater. I'll <laughs> swim to land. From New Orleans, from wherever underwater New Orleans is, and I'm like, I, call, I told y'all, fuck you, you. Spit that salt water out. You're like, I told you. Yes, the brackish mud. I'll come out of the brackish mud like swamp thing. Just be like, I told y'all, our phones were sending us telepathic messages. It is because um, I know that. Yeah, I know when somebody's about to text me all mm. the time. Oh wow! Right. Because you're that synced with your phone. I don't want to be. But also our phone is made from living things. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's why they don't last that long. There's a really good essay uh, by Donna Haraway called um, The Feminist Cyborg, I think is what it's called. Anyway, she talks about how we're already cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's real. Mm-hmm. That's real. So painting says, though no proponent of the experimental variation has yet tested these consequently unsubstantiated claims against oral and archival records in this book i do so in the process revealing a number of obscure and startling contextual and biographical details about mcveigh like experimental wolf is basically what was in my dream the other night really <laughs> and i well and i know like i know my dreams are prophetic i we've discussed mm-hmm. this before we know this so like so anyway just listeners really briefly i'm going to tell you about a dream i had the other night she's psychic can confirm <laughs> don't care if you guys don't believe in that do not give a fuck okay cannot even right? tell you okay sorry go ahead no. <laughs> i agree it's true um so but so i had this dream the other night <laughs> it's so funny but i'm gonna admit this on the podcast <laughs> i was dating timothy mcveigh because i'm in this book right i'm his birthday twin it's yeah he's my birthday twin right so i just and i just want to say off the top this was not a sex dream okay i did not have sex with timothy mcveigh we didn't kiss we didn't even touch he was only there very briefly mm-hmm. in the dream but as i went through like all my other like weird dream shit I was like thinking about the fact that I was dating Tim- Timothy McVeigh and how hard that was to explain. Because first of all, mm-hmm. like I had to explain that like, okay, yeah, he's not dead. That's true. So like, <laughs> that's like, that's the first thing. And then also to kind of go through this, like, well, like, you know, it's just an experiment that I'm not going to like, I'm not going to like fall in love with him or anything. We're just having an experience, you know, so it's not like that, you know, but also like a fling. Yeah, it's just a fling. And also like, um, you know, he kind of overcame himself so that he could like really get out there and tell this story about himself and like what he like what he went through. And it really had to do with this experimental woof idea is like what he went through in my dream anyway. But here's here's the thing. I was waiting I was waiting for a Hardee's hamburger for some reason mm. at an insurance office. Oh, so it was there taking comes a stress stream part. <laughs> it was because I was like, I'm never going to get my hamburger from this insurance agent. So while but while I was sitting there like waiting, like, what do I do now? I the thought I had in my mind was I do like having sex with him because he takes direction well. 
and that oh right God. that's hilarious right so this like so funny i know when i woke up i was like oh my god that's exactly what happened in Timothy <laughs> he just wants to be a good little boy yeah he just wants to be the best most special boy and take direction well yeah right i mean that's how you become teacher's pet right right you do everything that you're asked i mean that's how he was able to date my gay dream. <laughs> <laughs> look how much i just spiked you made me laugh so much <laughs> timothy mcveigh bagged a lesbian through taking direction that's so fucking right? funny <laughs> So anyway, I know that that's what happened because of my dream. And again, yeah. I mean, that's the one that I believe. Sorry. I mean, if I'm picking sides, it's definitely that one. Because of like the rest of how history has happened, (laughs) I guess, is (laughs) really why. I'm like, just because this is a thing that is actually like super common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... The thing with the black helicopters and calling people the black helicopter crowd is, first of all, black helicopters are real. Um, I think a lot of times they're actually navy blue, um, and that can be funny in some uh, conspiracy circles when you hear people arguing about what color the black helicopters actually are. Um, But they're definitely real. I've definitely seen black helicopters myself. Again, I've had nightmares about being picked up by black helicopters, like... They're definitely real. Many people can talk about them. And in fact, in fact, it was a black helicopter that picked up Timothy McVeigh on April 21st after he was arrested and transported him to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. Okay, I might need some back some context about black helicopters specifically, because I know that you said it's like uh, something that they would call conspiracy theorists, basically. Uh-huh. But like, I have I feel like I've always seen black helicopters. Right. You can get them on fucking Uber now. So yeah. is, did that not used to be real? <laughs> Were they? Uber? Yes. I don't. We can go down that wormhole separately okay. off, off radio. Okay. But yes, you can Uber helicopters now. Oh, wow. I know. Okay. Um, but yeah, I guess were were people trying to say that black helicopters weren't real? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times you have people in the projects, so black people will talk about black helicopters flying around. So there would be, which is, you know, it's government, it's surveillance, right? And so then you want to discredit black people in mm-hmm. general, and especially black people in the projects. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, look, they're so crazy. They think these black helicopters are flying around. And so that's so bizarre that anybody would act like that isn't happening. Right. And I can remember maybe like as early as just a decade ago of watching uh, videos of people like, no, look, you see that? That's a black helicopter. And like, like, see, I'm telling you, it's real. That's so interesting. Yeah. I I just missed. I just didn't know about that at all. Yeah. So, yeah, and this is in the 90s. And Mm -hmm. so probably people really thought that black, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. really did think that, like, I mean, the idea being, obviously, you can paint a helicopter black. Like, nobody's really saying that you can't But these are, like, covert military helicopters that are serving a nefarious purpose. Yes. And people who aren't subjected to this don't believe that it's happening. Exactly. Tale as old as time. Yeah, absolutely. People still think racism isn't real. So, but Timothy McVeigh himself was picked up in a black helicopter and taken to 
Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City, which just also kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, but maybe that's normal. Like, when why you would get, you need a helicopter if you're already there? I well, he if you were already in Oklahoma City, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Like, I guess they just took him not that far. <laughs> Got to do this in five minutes. <laughs> I guess so. Um, but also, just going to an Air Force base. But maybe that's standard for people who pull terrorism. I honestly don't. Or know. like former military. Yeah, that's what I kind of wondered. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's what it is, or if it's um, if it's you know doing the terrorisms and then you got to go to the Air Force. I don't really know. <laughs> um, but he was put into a cell with eight foot thick walls. And he apparently immediately began telling his guilty agent version of his story to his first lawyers, Otto and Coyle, which we brought up in the last episode, and I might have said he fired them, but actually they recused themselves because they knew their client was guilty, I guess. We'll get a little bit more into that. But they, they, had, they had to say it was a conflict of interest once they heard him talking, but these were his first attorneys. Were, um, and they went to see him at this air this eight-foot-thick walls. Like, what happens to you once you get pulled in? Like, it's crazy. They put you in a place like that, and then that's, that's like it. They had a camera on him all the time, and even, like, some psychiatrists wind up saying, like, you know, you, you're going to drive him crazy, you know, with this watching him all the time. And he was really upset about that. He's like, I don't want people like watching the Timothy McVeigh and his cell show. Like they're watching every, and like, even when they would turn off, they finally, one of the doctors got them to turn the camera off for four hours a day. And even then the guards were take, if you can imagine this, it probably was worse because then the, the guards were taking notes in a logbook. that probably made him feel crazier than being on a camera, right? So there's definitely, but I mean, I don't think it's unusual, like if they're going to take you into a place like this for them to start mind-fucking you. It was at Tinker Air Force Base that McVeigh not only began to tell his guilty agent story to people outside of his private world, but it was also a central location in experimental stories told by others. Stories that in many ways were elaborations of the stories McVeigh told before his arrest. As fate would have it, on the same day, McVeigh arrived at Tinker, the villainous Dr. Jolly. Go, bitch. Yeah. Then head of UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute showed up in Oklahoma City to coordinate mm -hmm. a psychological trauma team for survivors and first responders on behalf of the American Psychological Association. I mean, this is so terrible. Um, so the trauma team, this is the trauma team uh, 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 put together by Louis Jollyon West. Gross. Gross. The trauma team, along with several other disaster relief initiatives, they used Tinker as a coordinating and staging site. In experimental wolf stories, West's presence in Oklahoma City so soon after the bombing implied something much darker. His charitable activities there were simply a cover to manipulate the memories of critical eyewitnesses and shield his secret visits with McVeigh, whom he set about mind controlling until McVeigh, as obnoxiously as possible, confessed to being the lone wolf mastermind and, thanks to West, 
believed his own false confession wholeheartedly. Seemingly imbued with psychic powers on the evening of April 19th, that's that's the day of the bombing, before anybody knew exactly what had happened in Oklahoma City and prior to McVeigh's name even being announced as a suspect, Dr. West appeared on Larry King Live to discuss the lone nut, quote unquote, who had bombed the Murrah building. On April 22nd, the day after his arraignment, McVeigh was transferred to El Reno Federal Correctional Facility, located about 25 miles from Oklahoma City. The same day, Linda Thompson called the FBI to report that Jolly West was examining McVeigh at El Reno, and while McVeigh himself seems never to have discussed West in the years to come, unsubstantiated rumors about West's regular visits with McVeigh at El Reno proliferated. A couple of weeks after Otto and Coyle, those are the first lawyers, Mm -hmm. asked to be removed from the case, they were replaced by Stephen Jones, who we've talked about. According to Jones, before meeting McVeigh, he met with Otto and Coyle to discuss the transfer of the case, at which time Otto cryptically warned, when you know everything I know, and you will soon enough, you will never think of the United States of America in the same way. <laughs> I know. Okay. On May 5th, Jones and McBay met for the first time. In an internal defense memo, Jones recalled that as soon as he sat down across from his new client, McVeigh suddenly and without context declared, I am not brainwashed. Oh, okay. Okay, well, good. Okay. Good, good. Um, I guess I just want to remind, if people, like, don't know who Dr. Jolly mm. is, he, like, literally is an MK Ultra doctor. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, like, as proven as proven can be to be an MK Ultra pioneer. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, he is in photos with a Unabomber, and yep. he was a fucking doctor for Charles Manson, and mm-hmm. a bunch of other shit. Yep, Sirhan Sirhan. I yes! Mm-hmm. Yes! So, just for people who don't remember, right? Dr. Jolly, insidious, insidious man who pops up fucking everywhere. Right. His main thing is people who have gone through extreme experiences like extra human experiences that's like his uh what do you call it his specialty so that's i i don't know to me i'm like that's a cover for (laughs) yeah it's like because you're putting them in these experiences like you're not it's not like you're just coming on the scene after the fact to study them especially with the unabomber you see this like you were involved in fucking that dude's brain up yes why 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 all of this why i mean that's even like it's funny we get to that point in that in that ad lib conversation and i look down like what's next in my notes it says but why (laughs) why would the government do this do i answer my own question i hope i do You are listening to Secret Antenna, a completely unfunded podcast that we do for free. We made a Patreon to help us buy books and equipment, and we post full-length bonus episodes on there, mostly about topics we get a little more wacky on. Access to all of our content starts at a dollar a month, and you can subscribe at patreon.com slash secretantenna. And McVeigh rejected the idea that he had trauma, though. Even though all of these 
a psychiatrist would say otherwise. Um, he claimed not to remember much of his childhood, which would be. I'm not traumatized. I don't even remember anything. Right. I mean, I kind of, <sighs> I kind of wonder if that's the way he thought of it. He's like, I don't remember, and it must not have traumatized me. Where you know, whereas like it's the opposite. Yeah. You it's know, a very red flag. So he seemed not to really remember it, um, and then also. This is interesting to me. This is more interesting. Also didn't seem to really remember much about the two years leading up to the bombing. And wouldn't that be between Waco? Isn't wasn't Waco in 93? Yeah. So wouldn't it so like basically he doesn't remember too much between And that's okay, that's crazy too because I bet like when I think about like pharmaceuticals and stuff, mm-hmm. when I was on antidepressants, I don't remember that time really oh so now i'm like they could have just been like putting him on something too right because like shit like that alters the way you can create and form memories oh interesting what were they doing yeah to him yeah i mean that would have been like i guess those were his gun show circuit days yeah i mean there's a lot of reasons that people could not remember stuff totally that's just like what jumps to my mind because I, I have thought about that a lot from my experience being right. on Zoloft. Okay. Well, I mean, something's happening. I mean, he really doesn't remember the two years leading up to the bombing. I don't remember college, Timothy. <laughs> so, But, like, I don't know. I mean, just to talk about the Zoloft thing a little more, I guess. Like, one of my friends who has done, like, a lot of research on pharmaceuticals and antidepressants and all that stuff... She was, she told me one time, she was like, I bet if you went back on it, you remember everything from that (gasps) time. Oh, stop. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm like, no, thanks. Anybody who had like childhood abuse is going to have like big gaps in their memory from childhood until you don't. And then you're like, fuck. And then you remember (laughs) all too well. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Well, and things will change. It's funny too, how traumatic memory, even when you get it back, it'll like, like I remember scenes that like sometimes from the perspective of the person who was hurting me, like the visual perspective. Wow. Right. And so like, you just have to keep in mind that that's just like trauma brain. Mm -hmm. That's just like Like your brain, your brain trying to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Mm hmm. Right. Or just like, yeah, trying to fill in the blanks or just kind of the fact that like you dissociated in the moment, even though you know what happened. You were watching from the ceiling in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Timothy McVeigh's second lawyer, Stephen Jones, hired a mental hired mental health expert who dug around and determined that McVeigh's childhood, and this is from Wendy Painting, and family life were lonely and void of empathy or affection. And according to one Dr. Anthony Simone, a perfect environment for the formation of a future terrorist. I mean <laughs> Isn't he Gen X? Isn't that like oh, yeah. y'all's whole thing? It's yeah. like you kind of were ignored as kids. Totally. And he has that story to you. Well, join the fucking club, Timothy, <laughs> I guess. I don't, that's definitely not enough of a reason. No, it's not. When I read that, I was like, okay. I believe that that's the narrative. Yeah. That people would be trying to say, you know? Yeah. But like, look at you. You're not a, you're not a terrorist. Right. Right. I mean, right. I mean, I agree. I think it's, um, 
I think it's interesting that McVeigh denies it all. He's like, nope, 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 nothing bad ever happened. He kind of talks about his childhood, like, kind of ideally, and it actually was, like, super fucked up, right? So, but we so also, weird. like, talk about trauma in terms of, like, when we do talk about MK Ultra and mind control, trauma really helps. Oh. Right? It really helps people be you're kind I mean, of trauma predisposed fucks up your brain. right that's what it gets what it gets trauma-based mind control that's what the that's what the deep conspiracy theorists call it well right so like yeah on your own nobody tried to mind control me so like yeah no terrible things happen to me there's no way i'd do any of this shit it never even crossed my mind i mean even when i'm frustrated i don't think about gunning a bunch of people down i mean i related to falling down but not as much as like other people around me did i was like oh okay that's a little that's a little much you know i relate to the stress or whatever um but perhaps somebody who does have you know i mean i dissociate i have i'm compartmentalized like i have all of that going on what if Dr. Jolly got a hold of me when I was 18? I would never let him. <laughs> Thank you, Cal. <laughs> like, I would time travel. Yeah, I would. <laughs> um, so, but this is in, this is in Painting's book. Tim became deeply disturbed and displeased after learning of the mental health experts' findings and opinions about his family and childhood, particularly those Dr. Norton, whose reports, according to Simone, brought to light a number of other family skeletons. His reaction, Simone opined, indicated a clear affirmation of the presence of a whole lot of material in Tim's life, including the bombing, about which Tim would rather stay ignorant. Why? The old commentary about the emperor's clothes seems particularly relevant here. Norton and Simone concluded that in order to mask inconvenient truths about himself and his family, Tim McVeigh had engaged in a contextually embedded delusional process and further displayed symptoms of an externalized psychosis. On the other hand, sometimes there were reasons to wonder if some of the strange things he said might have at least some basis in reality. For some members of the Jones team, a major question concerning the stories McVeigh told was whether he really believed them or not. And and whether he really believed them or not. And bizarre as they seemed, might they actually even in part be true? If he believed them and they were not true, the team would need to sort delusion from fact. But if any of his stories were true, are based in truth, they were in wholly unfamiliar territory. It was the prevailing opinion of the medical team that he had disassociative identity disorder. So, which is, I think they used to call it multiple personality disorder. Oh. I think those are the same thing. Yeah, I think that might be true. Okay. So, uh, but according to painting, DID is a fundamental disruption of consciousness memory, identity, or perception of environment that produces a lack of connection in a person's thoughts, memories, feelings, actions, or sense of identity. An integrative deficit wreaks havoc with an individual's ability to maintain a sense of self over time, claim ownership of personal historical events, and the ability to differentiate between the real and the unreal. So if he did have 
this disorder maybe from childhood. And they just didn't realize it until, I don't know, because I'm just like, it's not like you don't get any mental health profiling when you're like going to get like special forces in the army or whatever. Right. Well, I wonder if that wasn't why he was like chosen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the other interesting thing, I think, I don't think I said this last time, but the Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, they all enlisted on the same day and then were sent to this cohort where they would be together in the army forever. This special. Yeah. They okay. were in three different states, and they all applied on the what? same day. Yeah, I thought it was kind of weird, what too. what the fuck? Right? And they went, the, the thing That's about- like that thing you posted this morning that was like, these four cops all killed yeah. themselves, but it's totes unrelated. Don't worry about it. Right. It's like, bitch, mm-hmm. who are you fooling? Not me. Right. Not Secret Antenna. We are not fooled. Your coincidence theories are driving me crazy. Yeah. I'm going to falling down because of this. Yeah, right. Just kidding. I have no interest in that. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I think it's really weird. And then the, the thing about the experimental cohort was that these three would stick together their entire time through the army, which is not usually like you leave boot camp and like you do, you have different things, you go different places, you do different things. But for this experiment, they were all going to stick together. And then they wound up all together. Yes. In this after terrorist act. After they were all out of the military. Bitch, please. Right. So like, I wonder if... The psychological test that they did entering the army. And they're like, these bitches are all crazy. We can just put them together. We can do whatever mm-hmm. we want with them. I mean, I don't actually know what goes on. But I'm like, I know they wouldn't let me in because I have flat feet and I'm crazy. Yeah. So, like, how are other crazies just getting by, <laughs> you know? Unless they're, ha- yeah, there's, like, a specific. Yeah. I mean, it just we're just spitballing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Wendy is saying this in her book also. I mean, yeah, maybe. I haven't read it. This book is very big. Yeah, this book is very big. We're going to read it, Wendy. (laughs) We got this. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm just wondering about that. And I wonder if there's like a certain kind of crazy that they're looking for, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It also reminds me of Joseph Heller's Catch-22, because that's what the Catch-22 is, is when the main character, Yosarian, goes to the doctor and he says you know i'm crazy doc you gotta take me out of the air you can't send me on any more combat missions and he's like well see that's not going to work because it would be crazy for you to want to go on the combat missions and since you don't want to go on them then you're not crazy so you have to go on them (laughs) anyway Mm. (laughs) that's the catch 22 wow yeah never read that book oh it's so good oh okay i think i have a copy (laughs) of it it's really good um it's really funny, actually. It's mostly dialogue. So many books that I've like, yeah, been like, I'm gonna read that, and then I just never did. Yeah, totally. but now I'm admitting it. Yeah, totally. Instead of lying about having read it, <laughs> it's called growth, people. Um. So yeah. So McVeigh was adamant that he'd never been traumatized um by anything ever, 
And oh his, my God, <laughs> know, that's right? so cool of him. And his lawyer Jones also dismissed the results. So like Jones, and, <laughs> I've never been traumatized by anything ever. Right, and this is coming from somebody who went through Desert Shield and yes. Desert Storm, but he was not traumatized by anything nope, ever. Not traumatized at all. Right. So and they, uh, but they were both determined to describe. This was McVeigh and Jones, uh, both determined to describe McVeigh's actions as revolutionary against the corruption of the government. Like him and his, the second lawyer who McVeigh then did fire, but Jones was really like, Jones was on McVeigh's side, like about so many of these things, but McVeigh wound up not liking him. I guess he just put too much out in the public. He just didn't like the story. McVeigh wound up firing him after the first two lawyers were like, we know too much. We have to get, we can't. It's a conflict of interest for us to try to defend him. The legal, no legal lawyers could just do that. I mean, I don't think they can just do it. I think they can ask to be taken off mm-hmm. of a of it, you know. And if and the judge has to decide mm-hmm. if that's because that's happening in a case right now with the um the Delphi case that's going on in Indiana. I won't I go into that right. That. Oh, I'll do a little bit of okay. on for we patrons can do a and, and tell me all about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but this was how Jones and I think McVeigh wanted to, to try this, you know, so McVeigh was very much like, I'm saying I want to stand trial. And all of these other people were coming in. They're like, you're so not sane. And all of these crazy things happened to you when you were a kid. And it's even like, I mean, to the degree that like neighbors and other family members report that they believed that Timothy, that all of the McVeigh children, he has two sisters, were invited into inappropriate sexual situations at the behest of their mother. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Right. And so, and as for like Timothy McVeigh. Right. Why didn't they bomb his mom then? Yeah. So like, and Timothy McVeigh, like, and then she like abandoned them too. And like all like, and he, he lived at neighbors places and stuff a lot. Cause his father was like really remote and didn't, wasn't involved, wasn't connected. Um, the sisters had lots of trouble throughout life. Um, so the, so like his childhood trauma is very real and he very easily could have, I mean, definitely I would say would have had like complex post-traumatic stress out of it right um but but then also like his love life as it were as time went on he had like one actual girlfriend but his first sexual experience was with a married woman that he worked with at burger king and then he had one like age appropriate girlfriend for a period of a short period of time and then all of his other now here this is you're gonna love this oh god all of his other sexual relationships with were with married women you know as one of the psychologists points out like his mother who was who was known the town knew her as somebody who was out all night drinking and and getting with other men she wasn't getting enough sex from her husband and like everybody knew that and like even timothy mcveigh at one point had said i would hear my parents either like through the walls fighting or having sex because i guess his mother would supposedly demand sex i don't you know i'm not there totally um, not traumatizing right right so I'm traumatized i know <laughs> i'm traumatized by this story too Jeez. so one of the psychologists really. pointed out like that the women that he had sex with were married like his mother was which i think is an astute point to make and it's also just from like my own work that i do people who have cheating parents a parent that cheats or both parents cheat 
tend to um, not make, tend to not have relationships that last more than like eight months. Like oh. they tend to like just not get into it. Yeah. So it, weird. Parental infidelity has a really strong indication of whether or not you're able to have romantic relationships in the future. And I say that. I'm so clocked right now. <laughs> but right? I, I mean, I, I wound up okay in the end, I guess. Yeah, but I, mean, I, I really, my relationships were fucked for a long time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my dad was a cheater. Right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it was my dad. <laughs> it was him. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that if you real, if you recognize it too, anybody out there listening, if you recognize it, I think you can you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think, for most people, it, they just don't get it. They go you through. You have to, unlike Timothy, you have to acknowledge that you have trauma. Yeah, first and foremost, and then be like, wait, it's not normal, really, for somebody to be forty years old and not have a relationship that was longer than eight months, huh? Maybe that had something to do with my mom cheating on my dad. It did. It did. It I'm did. just here to tell you, it did. So, um. But these wives include... Oh, God. Who? Terry Lynn Nichols and Michael Fortier's wives. Oop. <laughs> I'm sorry, but what? And that one, I don't know why. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. I don't know how to tell you this. LOL. That's kind of funny. I mean, it, it, it's just, I'm like, what? Like, this shit is so thick at the end of the day. I know. Like, I need like a real housewives... <laughs> documentary about the oklahoma city bombing with everybody's confessionals i wish i fucking wish (laughs) i know right maybe and you remember one of the wives she had to take a what was it like he got it oh yeah he got what what was it he got it so that his wife Lori wouldn't she'd get immunity oh right right <laughs> like i don't know i'm sure that's not connected but i just like i don't know why that blew me away so much but i was like what that but is kind of crazy it's kind of crazy but i guess it's just more crazy shit just throw it on the pile i mean absolutely and i guess you know if you're involved in a bombing plot like you're not talking to that many people maybe the only wives you can fuck are the maybe the only wives you can fuck are your friends wives that's the only wives you know i guess here's what um here's what timothy mcveigh said about it because after his arrest allegations that he was still a virgin are disinterested in either sex in general or women specifically particularly offended him asexual No way. I had no long-term love relationships, never met a woman I loved. That doesn't mean I didn't have sexual relationships. I'm very discreet. I don't need to brag about the woman I fucked. We keep it quiet. I never obsessed about one girl. If a girl I asked out said no, I said no problem. He's cool as a cucumber. Yeah, right? He's not traumatized. He's very discreet never met a, i mean like just that line i'm very discreet i'm super I mean, discreet i can fuck my friend's wives and they totally. don't even know who else says that i'm very discreet you only say that when you're a spouse fucker yeah. like nobody else says that trauma specialist lee norton began meeting with mcveigh in june 1995 continued to see him throughout preparation for his trial and conducted many of the defense team interviews with McVeigh's friends, family members, and co-workers. She felt that the shattering of his psyche began during childhood and continued throughout his adult life. Most markedly, after the Gulf War, he experienced increasing fragmentation. McVeigh told Norton that during the Special Forces tryout, 
He was told what they really did, which included bringing illegal substances into the country and hunting and killing potentially innocent people. According to Norton, his inability to reconcile his perfect image of the good that the army performed for the sake of the country to what he was told their actual mission may at times involve caused him to experience a remarkable, even earth-shattering sense of dissonance. When Mark Ham, criminologist at Indiana State and former consultant for the Jones team, wrote that the Army's cohort experiment provided the mechanism and, most importantly, the source of indirect support for the terrorism that would occur later in Oklahoma. In fact, he said the conspiracy to bomb the Murrah building could not have gotten off to a better start had it been orchestrated by the best and brightest at the Pentagon. In Ham's opinion, there would have been no conspiracy without the cohort program. For it was in basic training that Timothy McVeigh met Terry McNichols and Michael Fortier and their wives, who no, would become <laughs> Tim's closest friends and later his co-conspirators. All three had enlisted on the same day in different states. McVeigh in New York, Nichols in Michigan, Fortier in Arizona. They were assigned to the cohort unit and placed together in a six-man squad. So, yeah, that's kind of what the I'm thinking. Fuck. Right? We're definitely at a what-the-fuck point of this story. We, I mean, I mean, yes, we are. I guess every point of the story is like, it kind what of, the hell? It kind of is. I mean, even the lone wolf story is like, what the hell? What the hell? Right. So, yeah, in the next episode, we'll do at least one more episode on this book, and um, we'll go to the... We'll go to the places that make your brain really wobble. No. Warble? Wobble? The leaf room. Oh, my God. Not the leaf room. Not the leaf room. Oh, God. Even when I rake leaves, I'm like, oh, my God. I'm in the leaf room. Oh, my God. So I'm going to leave us with this outro from Wendy Painting. Whatever his reasons for joining, while he claimed to be so at the time of his death, upon enlisting, Timothy James McVeigh was no longer fully the captain of his soul nor the master of his fate. Rather, he became the property of the United States Army, and the chains that would bind him proved strong ones indeed. Timothy McVeigh had just joined an experiment in progress, one from which, psychologically, there would never be an exit strategy. Yeah. Seems like it. Yep. So thank you, Uncle Sam. Who, which, by the way, speaking of Uncle Sam... Did you know that Uncle Sam was originally a stilt-walking clown character? I didn't know that. Yeah, Dan Rice was his name, and he was a clown. He was a a stilt-walker, and he did this big act, and he wore the big hat. He dressed like Uncle Sam, like you see him now, except he was on stilts, and he was doing all this, like, Uncle Sam stuff was a joke. Because he was a clown. So he was making fun of like the United States and like capitalism and all this stuff. Wow. Right. Uncle Sam wants you to pay taxes, you know, like that. Right. And so then the U.S. got. I mean, don't get me wrong. Dan Rice was no like he's an antihero at best. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, he he wasn't some great dude or whatever. But that character is pretty funny. And the United States, I just think that's a good one because the United States was like, we have to fold that into our own shtick because people are responding to it. The public's responding to it. That's ours now. Yep. It's ours now. Uncle Sam is ours now. And he wants you to join the army. Wow. Yep. 
And bomb the Murrah building. That too, if you got time. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Thanks, Callie. Thanks, Michelle. Totally. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, listeners. For listening. Yeah. There might be new people here. There might be. And we appreciate you. Yeah, very much. And we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. What?